Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. A really exciting episode this week. We're talking to a whistleblower. Francis Haugett, the Facebook whistleblower, is on the show. I feel like we've been building to this for literal years. I've been talking about Facebook's content moderation, the implications of her release to the Wall Street Journal of the Facebook files and her decision to go public. And we really got into the substance of it. I feel like so much of the discussion around social media moderation is sort of built for a simplistic public consumption. And I really tried to get into the meat of these issues and what potential policy solutions there are. So give it a listen. Francis Algan, Facebook whistleblower. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast, author of The Power of One. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. I have followed your story, the Wall Street Journal reporting, now the book, super closely. So really excited to have the conversation. You know, the Facebook Files series and sort of the complaints about Facebook can be so sprawling. Like there's so Mm. much to it. So I just wanted to start off the conversation. If you had to sum up the top Facebook sin or your like main core objection, what is your top? Facebook objection? So I would say the through line that goes through all of the different kind of shocking, you know, headline exclamation mark type things that came out of the Facebook files. And to remind people who maybe don't remember exactly what happened about two years ago, you know, it ranged everything from Facebook knew there were human traffickers on the platform and worried more about offending the buyers than the people being sold. Or Facebook had lots of research on their products making kids unhappy, making them depressed facilitating eating disorders, refused to hand it over to the Senate when asked, you know, went on and on and on. But the thing that was the common through line, I would say, through all those things is we live in a world where Facebook has to report publicly its profit and loss numbers, its expenses, like how it got to that profit and loss. But it doesn't have to report a social balance sheet, you know, like what's the social costs of making those dollars? And for most other industries, those public costs, those externalities are very obvious. You know, it's pollution in a river, it's pollution in the air, it's forced labor. You know, we can see what's going on with digital products. You can take from the social side of the balance sheet and make your economic balance sheet look a lot better. And that's the core problem that is repeated over and over again across all of these, all of these harms. Yeah. And I mean, that really sort of comes through in the book. I mean, you make the point that like, you know, Apple, It would be sort of visible with a hardware device, whereas with a social media company like Facebook, it's less visible. Is it a matter of the fact that Facebook is customizing feeds from person to person? Or is it more than that? What makes Facebook's products so much like less visible than something more tangible? The point I make in the book is if you go search for Apple whistleblower, you don't find a lot. Like there are occasionally Apple whistleblowers, but they're not like Facebook whistleblowers. Like I, I always kind of bristle when people describe me as the Facebook whistleblower <laughs> because there's a new Facebook whistleblower every two weeks, you know, often with really big revelations. It's not like there's one person in the company that's feeding all that out there. It's like a whole range of conscientious people who know the public need to be brought in. So you can ask the question, like, why is that? Like, why is it Apple isn't producing the same volume or intensity of whistleblowers? But I think it's that when Apple launches a new iPhone, you know, within a couple of hours of that iPhone going on store shelves, 
filming YouTube videos live, like already live, where people have taken apart those phones and confirmed like, yes, that processor is in there. No, right. They'll be like, oh, the they added a hard drive and now the hard drive slightly slower yeah. because of it. And yeah, exactly. It's very visible to people. But when it comes to what I call opaque systems, and more and more of our economy is going to be run by opaque systems. So that's things like a large language model that lives on a data center. And all you see is the outputs. You don't see the inputs. You don't see how they're manipulated. It could be a social media site. So like you said before, is the problem because we all see something slightly different? That's definitely a huge part of it. So if we were talking about Google, have you ever programmed before? No, I'm not a programmer. I know you're not going to believe me when I say this, but if you and I sat down for three weeks, I could teach you enough programming that you could ask real meaningful questions about how Google works. You know, what's getting distributed, what's not getting distributed, how prominent are different kinds of things, what kinds of answers does Google give? If we want to do the same kind of accountability 101 for Facebook, for Instagram, don't even mention TikTok. TikTok's <laughs> way harder because it's video, right. right? It's bandwidth intensive. You know how much harder it is to do a video podcast than an audio podcast. We'd have to recruit 20,000 volunteers and convince them to install software on their phones that would send back what they saw on these platforms. It's a, an entirely different order of magnitude mm. in terms of difficulty. And Facebook knows that. With TikTok, sort of, I really understand it, right? Where it feels so it. tailored to the human being and it's sort of machine mm. learning driven where it feels like, is there even someone over at TikTok who really gets exactly why I'm getting what I am? I mean, but Facebook, at least in the beginning, was supposed to be more like network-based and like friend-based, which felt like, yeah, easier to trace. Do you think it's totally moved away from that? Or why? Mm. why is Facebook so much harder to follow than at Google? So by the time I got to Facebook in 2019, 60% of everything people in the United States viewed came from a Facebook group. It wasn't content from your family and friends anymore. Mm. It's one of these things where one of the projects my nonprofit is going to work on, it's called Beyond the Screen, because we help people see beyond their screens, is doing a simulated social network. Because, mm. you know, it's like you brought up before, a lot of people, if you were to stop them on the street and say, what is Facebook for? They would say, it's about connecting with my family and friends. But if you were to actually go and look under the hood, that product, you know, that product where the only things you saw in your feed were things that your family and friends posted, that world is long gone. And the reason why it changed was Facebook is an advertising-supported business. You know, as you scroll, you see an ad, they make money. You click on that ad, they get money. They have a motivation to get you to consume more and more higher value ads every single month. You know, the more time you spend on the platform, the more content you view, the more ad dollars come in. They had a huge motivation to figure out how can they make sure your feed is always full of really stimulating content. What's interesting about TikTok is TikTok said, hey, we don't want to wait to get critical mass. You know, in the case of Facebook or like creating a Facebook competitor, when the expectation from the user is the things that I see come from my family and friends, you have a like a chicken and an egg problem where you need to get all of the person's friends before the person wants to join, right? Like how do you make that happen? With something like TikTok or 
Now, Threads, Threads has a very similar model. Um, that's Facebook's new Twitter competitor. Right. There's much less of a user promise of what you're going to see. So when you show up, they don't have to wait for critical mass. They just need to entertain you. But at the same time, now you're putting yourself in the hands of an algorithm. You know, you better understand what the biases are in that algorithm, what it shows you and doesn't show you, because now the algorithm is in control, not your friends and family. You brought up threads. And I, I too, see the similarity with TikTok, where it's, you know, it's Mm bite-sized, you know, it's not as tied to even like a follower network as Twitter because they needed it to work right away. So it feels like, oh man, this is going to be really powered by machine learning pretty quickly. Like as you know, a reporter, it's funny to see sort of the reporter class sort of embracing threads at the moment when I feel like, you know, two years ago or more than that, they would have been so negative and apprehensive about trusting Facebook. I'm just curious, like watching Mm. the sort of pretty upbeat response to threads. What do you take from that? And like, are you surprised that there seems to be some media trust of Facebook right now? Well, I think that's one of these things where the trauma the Twitter community has faced in the last (laughs) year um, is pretty intense. You know, it's one of these things where, you know, Twitter never really went down that often. Now it goes down regularly. It used to be, you know, as Jack Dorsey, the former CEO, has pointed out recently, you know, it used to be basically when you posted, things went live instantaneously. And now they're, you know, he flagged that there were now, you know, a minute or two delays between when you posted and when it went out to people. I think... Elon Musk really gave himself an incredibly hard hill to climb when he bought the company using so much debt. Because when that happened, it meant that he put a clock on himself. You know, he has to make a billion dollars of profit a year on a product that was maybe breaking even before he bought it, which is really hard. And he's had lots of advertisers flee. So I think there's part of the positive reporting on threads is that people really liked having a space to discuss ideas, to discuss issues. And the idea that they could have a space again feels really good. Just to say another way, it's like people were so frustrated with Twitter that gave them some openness to trust Facebook again or Meta, whatever we're calling it these days. Anyway, continue. It's interesting. Like, I don't know if this is still true. But people were reporting the, you know, the first day to, of threads. You weren't even given the option to just receive content from people you chose. Like it really is like TikTok right. in that way where you have to put yourselves in the hand of the algorithm and be like, right. algorithm, may I please? Yeah, there's no sense? follower feed. Yeah. Does that mean you haven't downloaded it? Are you personally? I have not. Da- I have I've not, <laughs> I've not. It's not that I'm unwilling to download it. I just haven't got around to downloading it. And I, as someone who worked on Google Plus, so for your listeners who may not remember, you know, tech 12 years ago. Cut. Yeah. Google said, hey, there are flaws with Facebook. Like we should make a version of Facebook that doesn't have those issues. And in reality, you know, they were trying to go after the personal social media market. That's like you connecting with people you know. But they, because they wanted to grow so fast, they basically made something very similar to Twitter. And, you know, growing too fast is actually a problem. Because it means that when people go and take that chance on you, they don't land in a functioning community. They land in chaos. And they don't really understand what the point is. They don't understand what the point of this place is. It doesn't feel like a place. And they move on. And at least some of the initial data around engagement, it seems like that's a very similar problem to what Facebook is facing right now. People were willing to download it with threats, yeah. 
I mean, one thing Facebook did differently is they like pre-populated it with all these celebrities. Yep. So they had that and they had obviously the Instagram sort of connection to flow people in. But I agree there's a lot of similarity, especially in, you know, I mean, what's is it Google Plus? Man, I can't even remember the name. You just said it. Google Plus. Yeah. Yeah, Google Plus. I mean, go yeah. They like, I mean, they got a ton of users in the beginning. I, you know, I was yeah. on it for a second and then it sort of faded. So it's very possible. I mean, Threads takes that same arc. I don't think that's my personal view. I mean, is that a prediction or do you think this will be like a Google Plus situation? I think one of the things that's interesting about Twitter is the way I sometimes like to frame Twitter is Twitter is fueled by content from a relatively small fraction of its users who are most interested in the thoughts of that other small fraction of users. So I talked to a law professor who is regularly cited in tech discussions, and she was like, I use Twitter to hear from 300 other people. And it just happens to be that those people talking to each other and caring about what each other says everyone else gets to kind of be a fly on the wall and right. follow along for the conversation. There are people like Elon Musk who love like raising up their followers and like having direct conversations with a wide swath of people. But I would say the fuel, the real core of Twitter is those, you know, communities of connection. And it'll be really interesting to see if threads can maintain that. Like, is it just going to end up kind of a brand safe? By brand safe, I mean for, you know, you can sell Tide washing detergent and Clorox, you know, bleach wipes. <laughs> yeah, they're very pro-brands, um, definitely yeah. early. Is it going to be just a space that is, like, innocuous, or is it going to be a space that really does cultivate community the way Twitter did? I mean, it also, you know, it feels like you could have one community on threads and one on Twitter, mm. I mean, especially with sort yeah. of the part, you know, like, I mean, you're seeing Elon right now. He's, like, making these payments out to... Twitter personalities, it feels like extremely conservative. I mean, you could just see sort of more left-wing liberal sort of, you know, people on threads and sort of a right-wing Twitter world. It's very possible. I can totally imagine that happening. It makes me nervous because like when we do move into a space where we are entirely dependent on an algorithm, like I have no idea if I post on threads, like will my posts even get distributed? You know, like my publisher couldn't even tag it to sell the book, hmm. right? So it's things like that. Wait, you think fa you Facebook is like actively suppressing your book on their platforms or? I know that for events I've done, they couldn't use the word Facebook to describe the event. So I can't be the Facebook whistleblower. I can be a whistleblower. Like, you know, they'll have to sit there and try a bunch of different variation of ads to run an ad. Wow. What I was told by, by my publisher was, you know, they sell lots of books. They post about lots of books on Instagram. They went through and tried to tag my book, and they got back an email saying that it violated the commerce policy for Instagram. And they pinged their like concierge because they spend enough money on ads that they get you know a human <laughs> right, to exactly. talk to. Right. And the person was like, I don't know why this would violate the commerce policy. I mean, there's not like nudity, there's no violence, you know, right. whatever. And yeah, so they, they don't know why. I mean, do you think Facebook just has a blanket ban on people using the word Facebook? Oh, I don't know. I've had other experiences like the Nobel Peace Center had an event that I spoke at and they had never had an ad blocked for being a political ad until they advertised my event. So think about that. Like, do you think the events right. at the Nobel Peace Center are political? Right. I think most of them are, right? So... 
It is what it is. Have you interacted much with Facebook otherwise? Or like, have you had any direct engagement since you left? I think if I was more of a troll, you know, I have a little (laughs) bit of troll, not like a huge amount of troll in my heart. I have like enough troll for Spark, right? I would totally promote them more because they so aggressively will not acknowledge that I exist. So if like, for example, if you ever get to be in a Q&A session with a Facebook executive, like at a conference, ask them about me because they will not use my name. So that's the kind of thing where like, if I was a bigger troll, I would see more questions at their events, but you know, I have other things to do. So back to sort of the core disclosures, you know, in the book and Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly you talk about sort of them lying and I'm just curious, like what you think sort of the core or like great examples of like Facebook's Mm -hmm. deceit have been, because I mean, there's obviously they have such an information advantage where it's like, yeah. They can just run circles around anybody trying to scrutinize them because they understand the platform yeah. so much more. But the cases where they were, you know, lying. Flagrant. You know, I- so I'll give you an example. This is one of the core parts of my complaint. Back in 2018, Facebook faced a business problem. You know, they could see over time people were making less and less content. This is a normal phenomena on social networks. Like some people get really into it. Most people slowly start to self-edit, self-censor. And they tried a bunch of experiments on you and I to see, could they induce us to produce more content? And one of the things I know, it's like, guess what? Your experiments are on every day, every time you're on one of these platforms. So it turns out if they artificially get you twice as many likes, and the way they do this is they just keep showing your, your post to more and more people until you get to that number of likes. If they can get you up to you know twice as many likes, you produce more content. You know, it's a very clear, like, dose-response thing. If you feel more social rewards, more little hits of dopamine, you make more content. Right. So they came out and said, we don't want people mindlessly scrolling. You know, mindlessly scrolling, that's bad for people. So we're no longer going to prioritize content on Facebook based on how much time you're going to spend on the platform. That's like, you know, it could be a proxy for like how much you enjoy consuming things. Instead, we're going to reward meaningful social interactions. Yeah, I remember. So I think about a phrase like that. It's like, what is, a, like to you, what is a meaningful social interaction? Something that, you know, like a day later I'd reflect on and say, oh, that was like a good thing. Okay. And I'm like glad it happened. You know, it has some or maybe like your friends shared something really revealing. Right. And you right. wrote a comment saying, you know, right. that's hard. I'm really glad you right. shared that. You're like, that right. sounds like a meaningful social interaction. In reality, it was just, was there any social interaction? Hmm. Right. So you could put bullying or hate speech in a comment and that would be considered meaningful social interaction. And within six months of this, researchers across Europe on the left and the right, political parties, political parties on the left and the right, were telling Facebook researchers, we know you changed the algorithm. It used to be we could post like a white paper on our agricultural policy. And we get it. It's like not the most thrilling thing in the world. Didn't get a lot of comments. But we could see from the stats that people spent time with it. They read it. Now, if we post that same kind of, you know, bread and butter content, nothing. It's crickets. Like we're being forced to run positions that are so extreme that we know our constituents don't support them. But like our job is to run social media. Like we have to like put stuff out there and it has to work or we'll lose our jobs. 
And what's kind of crazy about this is in some ways, Facebook acknowledged implicitly they had a problem because they put out, excuse me, Mark Zuckerberg put out a white paper, probably one of his employees. It's like 5,000 words long. I really doubt Mark wrote it. It said, hey, this engagement-based ranking thing we just launched, there's a problem, which is people are drawn to engage with extreme content. But don't worry, don't worry. You know, we ask people afterwards, did you like it? They say, no, we're going to protect you from the most extreme content by taking it down. We're going to have these magical AI systems. And even their solution to their first lie was another lie. Because those systems that they claimed we take down all the bad stuff, they were only successfully removing three to 5% of things like hate mm. speech or less than 1% of violence, right? It's kind of crazy when you think about it. But they told everyone from Congress to, you know, the you know, teachers unions, like we're protecting people. But in fact, it was all kind of smoke and mirrors. I think this is the policy solution you want, or at least the one that would seem huh? to sort of come from what you're saying is like, okay, some sort of disclosure where, you know, outsiders can sort of track how this huh? is all happening. I mean, how possible is that? I mean, every social media huh? network totally. is so different. You know, I'm a capitalist. I want companies to be able to change and react and like, you don't mm -hmm. want a bunch of laws that like say, oh, you need to disclose things this way. And so now you're forced like with a certain type of, you know, the same network you've had instead of evolving. Like, how would you see a disclosure regime working that still allows companies like Facebook to be flexible and to change? Let's actually unpack for a second something you just said, which was, you know, I think a lot of people don't sit and think about, you know, what's the menu of options when it comes to intervening in a problem as complicated as this? Right. I'm really glad that you brought up the idea that these companies grow and change or that, well, you know, the next one to come along might not fit the exact same mold of this one. Right. One of the ways the European Union handles that flexibility, and, and to be really clear, like this kind of way of doing regulation, of saying disclosure and transparency, is in, instead of something like what's happening in, say, Utah, where Utah is coming in and saying, this is how you will write your if people are under 18, they have to have parent supervision, no privacy for kids, their parents can see everything. Or like Montana coming out and just flat out banning TikTok. Those are kind of, we'll call them building fences type rules where we're like, right. oh, this is the fence you can't cross. And the thing about technology is they, it moves and changes and they're very good at running around fences. Right. So the alternative is something like what the European Union passed last year, which is called the Digital Services Act. And the Digital Services Act says, hey, if the core problem, you know, we started at the beginning of this conversation, if the core problem is a power imbalance, right, like the fact that you can know what's going on and I can't know, let's address that core problem because a lot of other things will flow downstream from it. So they say, hey, if you know there's a risk of your product, you need to tell us about it. You know, if you discover one, if you can, you know, imagine one, you need to tell us about it. You need to tell us your plan for mitigating it because it's going to be different for every platform. We want to unleash innovation. And you need to give us enough data that we could see that there was progress going on to meet that goal. And if we ask you a question, we deserve to get an answer, which sounds really basic, but is not true today. You know, I've been asked mm. questions by governments around the world that are very basic, like, how many moderators speak German? You know, I've gotten that question, but for different languages all around the world. And it's because Facebook doesn't have to answer. They don't even have to answer things like how many users are there in your country. 
Which is extremely frustrating given that Facebook's stance has always been where their move has been like, regulate us. Like, you know, not all these decisions should be made by a private company. Like, and then it's like, oh, well, then why don't you give at least the governments around the world the information they would need to write good regulations? So, I mean, obviously you're talking to a journalist, so disclosure is always going to be something I'm going to cheer for, but certainly a frustrating situation. To provide a roadmap, though, so my nonprofit is called Beyond the Screen. One of our core projects is called Standard of Care, where we are working to build out a wiki that people can contribute to around identifying the problems of social media. What are the surface areas, or we call them levers, for preventing or mitigating harm? And then what are the strategies for pulling those levers? So just to give context on that, you know, a lot of the problems around kids a lever that is common across them is let's keep under 13-year-olds off these systems. But when the kids' advocates talk about technology, they often don't know what's possible. And so they'll settle on solutions that might seem obvious but have problems. So, for example, in the case of the lever of keeping under 13-year-olds off the platform, they'll say, let's check IDs, which I don't think you want. I don't think I want. It also just doesn't work. But if you'd gone to a technologist and said, hey, I have this lever, Let's keep under 13-year-olds off the platform. That technologist could come back and say, here's 10 or 15 different ways to find under 13-year-olds. You know, some of it's really basic, like kids will say, I'm a fourth grader. Or things like, I learned this one from a principal. Kids report each other, like to punish each other. So like, you're mean to me on the playground, and I'll report your Instagram account. Hmm. And as soon as you find 10,000 kids, you can find all the other ones. And so the way I think this could tie into transparency is once we have a menu saying these are the harms, these are the surface areas, the levers for addressing each of those harms, you can come in and say, okay, then we at a minimum. Like, I think there should be raw data assets for researchers. But if you don't want to go that far, at a minimum, you can say, we need data on how bad each of those harms are and how hard you're pulling the levers to try to reduce those problems. You can figure out lots of different strategies to pull those levers. But you need to show us data on things like under 13-year-olds. How late are they on the platforms at night? That kind of thing. I mean, a core response that Facebook would give in this situation would just be, they might not say this outright because it's probably not political, but like, you know, some of these problems that you've identified are just human problems, Mm. right? If you talk about Mm. sort of the Instagram critique with it potentially making sort of young teenage women, sort of some segment of them unhappy. I mean, you could say like, was that so different from Vogue? Is this really an algorithmic problem? Mm. Or is this just like how humans are? I mean, and I would probably attach more on the, a lot of the sort of democratic liberal sort of anger at Facebook was about just what Trump supporters are like and like their views and the fact that there's like an audience for them and not always the fact that Facebook would give them distribution. So I guess across a lot of these categories, and we can get into the particulars of what I mentioned, but what would you say about the just like some of these things people are mad about are just things that human beings do that happen to happen on Facebook, but it's not necessarily their levers that are moving people to do those things. So I think one way to think about this is technology can either amplify and bring out the worst in us, or it can act as a bridge that helps us seek our best and happiest selves. So I totally agree with you that, you know, there have always been teen girls that were unhappy about their bodies or how nice their clothes were. But there are a limited number of pages of Vogue every month. 
You know, the second time you read Vogue, you're going to have a different impact on you than the third time you read Vogue, or you're going to get bored of it. And in the case of something like Instagram, you know, Instagram progressively pushes you towards more and more extreme content. So I'll give you an example. I had a journalist reach out to me for an interview, and he explained to me that he had just had a new baby. So this is a healthy, happy baby boy. He's a modern father. He made an Instagram account for the baby. That baby had maybe five or six baby friends. Everyone here is a healthy, happy, cute baby. He's only ever clicked on or commented on happy, cute, healthy babies. And yet about 10% of his feed was children who were visibly suffering. So kids who had gotten horrible accidents and were disfigured. Disabilities and deformities that looked really painful. Kids dying of cancer in hospital beds with tubes coming out of them. And he was like, Francis, how did we get from healthy, happy babies to this? Like, what happened? I've only ever clicked on the happy content. And I was like, well, the AI knows very clearly you like babies. You know, you've made this whole little baby-centric world. So it's showing you content and knows that people who like babies have trouble not engaging with. And I want to be honest, even if you're not clicking like on that content or sad or whatever, you probably are lingering. Right. And a lot of these AIs have dwell. You're just, you're, the fact that you paused is a sing- signal that you like that content. And so, you know, he's old enough and, you know, cognitively mature enough to see something weird is happening. With a 13-year-old girl, you know, she might start out by looking for something like healthy recipes and just by clicking on the content, get pushed over time towards more and more extreme materials. And we see these reports from things like child psychologists who say, I have these kids in my practice. They come into their appointments and say, I'm trying to make better choices. Like, I'm trying to follow the program. But it follows me around Instagram. And right now, we live in a world where we don't have consumer rights to really basic things like, should you be allowed to reset an algorithm without losing all your past? Hmm. So like those kids are being forced to choose from their pasts, you know, all their memories, their friends, and their futures, because an algorithm wants to keep them from moving away from something that was hurting them. I'm sure you saw, you know, if you want to delete threads, they say oh, you have delete, to delete Instagram. Instagram too, which is just yeah. like insanity. I mean, it's like, oh, we know you love this other thing. I'm much more supportive of the we should regulate tech mm. through laws that like correct it rather mm. than the sort of huge antitrust push. I mean, to mm. me, like things as simple as just like the push notification hacking. Like we need mm. to escape a world where like yeah. tech companies are allowed to use sort of little badges that psychologically drive us crazy that don't show like actual alerts. But the problem is you write that rule, you know, like I'm sitting here, like I'm frustrated with yep. like Facebook and I'm like, why is Facebook showing me this group that I never use, but it knows I love to clear algorithms. We should ban it. But then, you know, for the next startup that's trying to build and doesn't know anything about, you know, it's just like, it creates a huge regulatory burden that could end up helping Facebook. So this is part of why we want to do our standard of care project, right? Like right now, Facebook has a really huge advantage in that they have done research in this space for decades and decades, not decades, decades, 15 years, 17 years, somewhere in there. I guess they are coming up on 20 years because it's 2023 and they were founded in 2004. But if you want to talk about real deep cuts, do you remember Friendster or are you not, yeah. not quite old enough? Yeah. that's So Facebook was my first real 
social media. I graduated from you weren't high a MySpacer in 2009. So, but I'm aware of sort of the history of yeah, that, yeah. The first web crawler, so that's a thing for downloading data off the internet so you can analyze it, that I ever wrote, I wrote Friendster because I was using really early graph mapping algorithms because I guess I've always loved graph-based problems. But yeah, part of why we're doing standard of care is, we know, we want to make sure that the next generation of social platforms, and you know, social platforms take lots and lots of different forms. Things like Roblox. Roblox is a social network. You know, we're going to always have new social platforms. How can we make sure that people have the best head start, you know, the best platform to build off of to be like, oh, interesting. We can get a very robust education on what we should be worrying about very quickly and an understanding of like what options exist for being able to move forward on those problems. Is privacy a big part of your advocacy mm -hmm. or like how optimistic are you? To me, I'm sort of like, oh man, privacy is sort of lost in this world once you're on them. Like, I, I'm just not like a privacy. That's mm. not my, I'm much more aligned on this sort of like, oh man, them hacking our brains and like using actual like psychological tricks to get us to engage with them. That's really troubling. But like, yeah, I, I don't know. How much time are you spending on sort of privacy advocacy and what's your sort of view on, mm -hmm. on that part of it? So privacy is not what I would say one of my tentpole issues. I'm very open to it as a technique in terms of, you know, people emotionally connect with privacy as an issue. And it is a way of decreasing the ability of algorithms to be able to act towards you. Like if they're not allowed to record information about you, right. it's harder to manipulate you. At the same time, like, you know, we're developing AIs that are getting better and better at doing implicit inferences. And so it's this question of, you know, how little data do you really need in order to actually still see a lot of these phenomena? And also, I think it's one of these things where it's like, I don't think you can write privacy laws that are going to strip enough data to actually neutralize the problems that we're talking about here. I'll give you a really basic example. One of the big ways you reduce misinformation on something like WhatsApp, which is end-to-end -end encrypted, you know, it's private chat, is you say, hey, you know, as something gets reshared, so there's a chain of reshare. So I got it, I reshared it, my friend reshared it, on and on and on. When there's a chain of reshares, once it gets five hops away from the person who created it, say to them, hey, you can totally spread this further, but you have to copy and paste it. You, know, you have to make an affirmative action to continue mm. forward it. That kind of change doesn't, you know, you know, allowing that, not allowing, that's not really a privacy topic, but it's one of the most impactful things for safety. So I'm very pro-privacy legislation if people want to push it. I think it can have a really positive impact on a lot of the problems I talk about. But it's not intrinsically solve all the things that we're talking about here. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. I sort of alluded to the political mm -hmm. piece of this, sort of digging into that section. I mean, the political asymmetry in the United States and like how that affects conversations about Facebook. Mm. Like to me, it's like pretty obvious that like, Trump supporters, Republicans, like are behaving in sort of different ways than Democrats and spreading generally more false information. And like, it's very awkward for Facebook, certainly, and for politicians where, hmm. well, I don't know, journalists can sometimes sort of have trouble sort of highlighting that asymmetry. Hmm. I don't know. What's your view on it? Do you agree with me that there's like hmm. a sort of partisan asymmetry there and that that is sort of creating some of the problems about how Facebook is able. Facebook doesn't want to target Republicans because then they're going to get a lot of heat 
from Republicans. And so then they're not willing to do sort of things that would have a asymmetric outcome, I guess. Do you agree with that is sort of the question? Facebook has spent a lot of money trying to frame the issue of what can be done about any of these online safety problems in terms of freedom of speech versus safety. And they get up there and this is a real quote. Mark Zuckerberg went on a podcast and he was like, you know, I've really grown a lot in the last year. This was like, I don't know, a year after I came out, nine months. You know, I've really grown a lot in the last year because I've realized sometimes if you stand up for what you believe in, you're going to be unpopular. And I'm a defender of freedom of speech. Right. And what I found so aggravating about this is like, you know, that thing we just talked about with WhatsApp, you know, when you cut the reshare chain at five. Right. You know, if you do that same thing on Facebook, but you cut the reshare chain at two, it has the same impact on misinformation as the entire third-party fact-checking organization. Mm. And you're not picking and choosing right. what are the good ideas and the bad ideas. And I think right now, you know, a pattern we see across the world is if you are a political party that is not in power, you have more of a motivation to figure out new technologies, new ways of reaching people because you're the party that's out of power. You know, you don't have the advantages of being an incumbent. And so if we were to roll back in time to say the Obama presidency, like the first one, you know, when Obama got elected, he did a lot of techniques with technology that no one else was doing. You know, they were monitoring, you know, what's known as A-B testing emails. So they would say, you know, if Obama holds a puppy, how much money do we make? If Obama's there with his wife, how much money do we make? You know, do people sign up for the XYZ thing? He had a, a motivation to do that because he was the scrappy incumbent. And so I think when we think about these things as like there is a partisan lean that, you know, one side is maybe playing the game a little harder than the other side. I think one way to think of it is that it's just a question of like who is or isn't in power. And so what I always try to say when I speak with right-leaning voters or right-leaning podcasters, if you have any suggestions for ones I should go on, I'm always trying to reach out to a more and more diverse audience. If your listeners can think of great ones for me to go on, email me at francis at francishaugen.com. What I would say is if you care about freedom of speech, you should be demanding transparency about these censorship systems. You know, when I talk to women's rights advocates around the world, all of them have been kicked off Facebook because these AI systems are so crude that if you talk about violence against women, the AI thinks you're committing violence against women. Like, if you really care about freedom of speech, you should be marching on the streets for transparency. And I think that's a space that we should all be willing to work in. I totally get sort of the messaging there and that you want everyone to be sort of on board with these issues. I mean, you look at even the threads rollout Mm, when they launched uh it, they had some, I think, tools in there early on that said, oh, you know, this person, I forget what the exact language was. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, you know, I forget if it was the past false things or I'm not going to get it totally right. But there Mm. were warnings before people reshared them, which then like can have sort of a perceived sort of partisan focus. And obviously, I mean, Elon Musk's whole campaign on Twitter was the idea that Twitter was sort of shadow banning, you know, people in their replies and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess the question there is like, clearly what we're seeing is there is some sort of right wing backlash to cases Mm. where social media companies try to do what you're saying, which is sort of 
either flag or not certificize things that violate their policies. I think this, again, it's funny. I actually worry about this a lot for AI safety. If you already feel distressed, you know, you feel like you have been left behind or you're marginalized. And, you know, I grew up in Iowa. Like, I have a lot of empathy for Republican voters today. You know, Iowa has been left behind economically in a pretty dramatic way. That if you already are feeling a little that anxiety about the idea that people with power don't really care about you, it's very easy to read into when a moderation system takes an impact that you're being singled out. But I think this is also true for, say, African-American or less affluent people who participate online. That you have see very similar things where, like, uh, African-Americans will get sanctioned for hate speech because these systems are not very well done. And so I think there's a fear, and this is a fear that could be addressed by being more transparent of saying, hey, we're going to actually let you see what we're doing. Because in the case of AI safety, you're already seeing people come out with calls of saying, I don't want systems that have been aligned with the public good. I want true or real AIs. And I think that in both cases, either what conservatives are saying about content moderation on threats or AI safety, You know, when people feel like it's out of their control, when they feel like something's being done behind the scenes, they object to it. So giving the user control, basically. Or having enough transparency that you can build trust on these things, right? Like it should be possible for researchers to come out and say like, hey, actually, or if you yourself, so right now, if your content gets taken down on Facebook, the only people you can appeal to or you can send your thing off to is the oversight board. Imagine if you could say, I'd like to be put in a public research data set. Like, I'd like reporters to be able to look at this and say, oh, interesting. You know, this whole political candidate is getting taken down at a much higher rate than this other one. Like, that would be a very different world. Facebook would have to work harder to make sure that its systems were objective and effective. In the book, Power One, which everyone should go read, and you talk about, like, the rise of COVID. And, like, I mean, COVID sort of is a great way to get into the misinformation question. And Mm. I think like how misinformation, like the view on sort of that word and sort of the ideas there, what is your view on like how Facebook handled COVID? Like, Mm. are you supportive of, you know, tamping down on people who were like, Mm. you know, skeptical about the origins of the vaccine or skeptical about the vaccine? Because that fits right into this sort of partisan thing where there end up being sort of sides that align with Hmm. parties that fit onto these. So yeah, how do you score Facebook's handling of COVID misinformation? Oh, great question. God, it's interesting. My criticisms on Facebook are much more like the part of the book that I, I think you're alluding to is, you know, when they went and divided up the United States into 600 communities, So think of a community as you enjoy the same kind of groups, you follow the same kind of pages, you post on the same kinds of topics, you click on the same kinds of topics. You know, imagine you put people into communities that were between 500,000 people and 3 million people. If you went and said, you know, how many of these communities make up 80% of all the received COVID misinformation? Hmm. It turned out that 4% of the U.S. population fell into communities that got 80% of the COVID misinformation, right? So you and me, average person, gets maybe one piece of COVID misinformation every couple of days, once a week. 
for a small fraction of people, they were getting whole streams of it. It's what happened with the January 6th people, but for different groups, different ideas. And, and part of that was because the way Facebook was designed was if you have a post that is really controversial, you know, has a big fight in the comments, every new comment makes that post new and it can show up at the top of your home feed again. And so there were a few communities where, you know, COVID had a really intense emotional valence. Those communities actively censored out voices that said anything different. And they became these kind of echo chambers. And so I think there's interesting conversations to be had around like how do phenomena like that occur and like what other contexts are they happening in? And so like, let's imagine you're seeing something like that where, you know, the algorithm and the product design are pushing people towards these kind of parallel realities. And like, that's why you had people showing up and like, you know, threatening teachers with guns or like people showing up at school board meetings screaming because literally when they looked at their Facebook feeds, all they saw was stuff about how teachers were trying to kill their kids, right? So that's kind of the environment we're entering into when we have to say like, what is Facebook's role or what should Facebook's policy be? And I think it's really complicated. Like, I think they did a bad job in that they had, you know, these blacklists, they had the concepts that you couldn't talk about, but they never told anyone. You know, they never let us see how well these systems performed. And it meant that you had people feel like they weren't, like there was a hidden truth. And hidden truths are very alluring. And so, you know, effective social software should be designed such that if I write a thoughtful reply, if I go do research, if I come back to your allegation with, you know, something meaningful for a conversation, I should get similar amounts of distribution to your inflammatory statement. And that just doesn't happen today. Like the systems aren't designed to reward extreme ideas. They're not designed to reward thoughtful, moderate ideas. So your solution there would be just to to give more distribution to sort of counter messaging, basically? So I'll give you an example. So like they've done research inside of Facebook. And one of the things that's kind of exciting about the next few months is like Harvard has an archive of most of the Facebook files. And they're starting to make access for those documents to academic researchers. One of the papers in there talks about how if you are good at writing such that people diverse from you, different from you, can engage with that content or those ideas, you're doing a very complicated thing, right? You know, if I can write a political post that Republicans and Democrats can like instructively have a conversation in the comments, you know, people are thumbs up in each other. It's like a positive conversational template. I should be rewarded for that. Because it's not obvious. Like, I might not get the most comments. I might not get the most likes. But if I can get a diverse community of people, a diverse audience to engage with it, that should be rewarded. If you come in there and say, hey, we're going to boost content from people who can successfully reach across the aisle, you end up getting less hate speech, less violence for free, less misinformation. So it's a lot of these things where if you start making transparent what is distributed versus what is created on these platforms, and you start saying, hey, like right now, what you're giving distribution to is very different than what's being created. Can we get those a little bit more in line? I have a feeling what would end up happening is you'd start finding more techniques like that where you could come in and say, hey, people who are fear-mongering, you know, they shouldn't be the only ones who get to stand on the stage. And that's kind of what's happening today. 
So it's still a world where like there's like sort of a hand on the till in terms of mm-hmm. what's getting reach and like it's just sort of in some ways just doing things that are less oriented around sort of their business interests necessarily, which are max engagement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's certainly not saying like don't sort of weigh certain things differently than others, right? Because if you just tried to create this sort of like neutral algorithm, you would just then be deferring to sort of negative aspects of humanity, potentially. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Algorithms can only capture the level of complexity that you put in the algorithm. So if you come in there and say, hey, people developing compulsive behaviors, right? So in the case of kids, you know, something like 8% of kids say that they can't control their usage and it's hurting either their employment, school, or their health, right? Think about that, 8%. How self-aware are 14-year-olds? Like, not super self-aware. How honest are they with themselves? Not super honest. It's probably a lot more than 8%, right? They're suffering like that. You know, if you don't have a system that says, hey, sleep-deprived kids are a long-term harm to society. You know, they do worse in school. They are at higher risk for developing mental health issues that will last for them throughout their life or put them at higher risk of recurrence. They're more likely to use drugs, both uppers because they're tired, downers because they're depressed. You know, if you have an algorithm that just is like, how many clicks can we get? Like, how much ad revenue can we get? You don't capture those kinds of social costs. And so I think there's a huge opportunity where if you just come in and say, like, hey, with cars, if you have a car accident, everyone gets to see the car accident. You know, everyone gets to see the body on the ground and see that your, you know, your seatbelt didn't work. We don't have a similar feedback cycle on these social platforms. You know, they can keep kind of having their problems and they don't have anything that brings them back to center. For the last part of the conversation, just talk about, you know, the decision to release Mm -hmm. information and to go to the Wall Street Journal. And yeah, the reporter, it's Jeff Horowitz, right? He reached out to you on LinkedIn or tell the story a little bit about how this happened. Like, did you see yourself like as a whistleblower before you heard from him? I had been contemplating for quite a while, like, would I have to come forward at some point? Like, I had a chance to talk to my parents about it a large number of times just because, Mm. like, what I was seeing on a day-to-day basis while I lived with them during COVID was just so different than what the Facebook public narrative was on these issues. But the moment where I was like, okay, I have no other options was right after the 2020 election. So this is in December. It's like less than 30 days after the election. They pulled us all together on Zoom and they said, hey, you know how for the last four years, the only part of Facebook that was growing was the civic integrity team. So it was the team that was for Facebook.com at least. So civic integrity's job was to make sure that Facebook was a positive force in the world, like a positive social force in the world. You know, it wasn't going to disrupt elections. It wasn't going to cause any more genocides because by that point there'd been two. You know, it was going to be a positive force. And they said, hey, you are so important. We're going to dissolve your team and integrate it into the rest of Facebook. And when they did that, that was kind of the moment where I realized Facebook had given up, that the only way Facebook was going to save itself was if the public got involved, that the public had to come and save Facebook. And so by chance, so that day I went and opened up LinkedIn because, you know, I was kind of. When you have instability at work, that's what you do. You know, you open up LinkedIn. 
And I saw that I had a message from this guy, Jeff Horowitz, and he did a lot of reporting for the Wall Street Journal about the violence that Facebook had facilitated in India, particularly like Muslim Hindu violence. And, you know, he said, do you want to talk? And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, of all the places that I would want to work with, I wanted to work with the Wall Street Journal because I really view all of these topics as bipartisan. You know, they're not left, they're not right. They're like basic rules of the road. And I knew that if the reporting had come from the New York Times, that there would be a large swath of right-leaning voters that would never be able to trust it. But if it came from the Wall Street Journal, it was likely that they would be able to at least consider it. And I think that's part of why the Senate hearing was so bipartisan, because it was something that came out of, you know, it was trusted, like the, a lot of the things that were said in those articles sounded crazy. They sounded super, there's like no way, there's no way a company could be this bad. Like the human trafficking thing of the Facebook employees being worried about offending buyers over the people being trafficked. But because it came from a very, you know, center of the road, cautious publication, people were like, oh, maybe this is actually true. And the- yeah, I mean, I think this journal is so credible and sort of careful in how they present things. Initially, you were not going to come out, right? Like, what motivated your decision to go public? So part of why the disclosures are so large is I wanted them to be able to stand on their own. Like, I always expected to do, like, closed-door briefings with, like, governments to be able to explain them to them, but I never intended to be, like, part of the story. And right before I came out, so maybe... A couple months before, my lawyers started really putting pressure on me where they were saying, you know, Facebook knows. it's, you know, They can look at all the different documents, right? right? They know it's you. Yeah. You know, the report is going to get started. They're going to figure it out real fast. Or as soon as they start getting asked for comment, they're going to figure it out real fast. And the Wall Street Journal, they said, here's the deal. Like, either you can wait for the rest of your life for Facebook to present you to the public You know, every day you're going to like open, you know, Google News, you're going to open your newspaper and be like, is today the day that Facebook is going to introduce me in the worst possible way? Or you can take responsibility for what you did. You know, I know that you don't want to be out. You don't want people looking at you. You don't want to be out there. Like, you know, go and take responsibility. Because if you do closed door briefings, every single briefing you do will expand the circle of trust. And you're going to be like the juiciest right. story for some reporter to break. Like right. if they can you're find your name. You're a post or somebody would eventually yeah. just, yeah. And one of my friends joked, like after I came out, they were like, I don't understand how the story stayed quiet for so long. I thought everyone in San Francisco knew Francis was doing this. <laughs> and I was like, everyone in our circle of friends knew I was doing this. Not everyone in San Francisco. But right. still, it's one of those things. Like someone brags to their friend about how I know right. who the Facebook whistleblower is. Right. And, you know, it just goes to... And so I decided to step out into the light. And it's actually been a really transformative experience. You know, it's one of these things where I spent a lot of my life, like, really trying to avoid being seen. You know, like, I've gotten married twice. I eloped both times. The idea of standing in front of a crowd, having them just, like, stare at me for my wedding sounds very stressful. You know, I've had two birthday parties in the last, like, 20 years. Like, it's just not my jam. But it's been really interesting having to, like, stand up and try to educate people on these issues because, you know, I really believe in democracy and the way the world changes is we change it. You know, we get out there and we say, hey, 
you know, I'm going to keep repeating this until I see something different in the world. And having to show up in my own life has been a huge blessing. And I, something I never expected to be one of the things that I would walk away, you know, two years later and say, I'm so grateful for this. Awesome. That is a great ending to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. And I really appreciate talking to you. My pleasure. The last thing I would leave people with is if you think all these things are too complicated, you know, like these are, you know, I couldn't understand a technical book. The whole point of power of one is that democracy requires an informed population. And so it is written so that if you could follow along today, I guarantee you'll be entertained and follow along the power of one. And there's lots of fun stories and, you know, crazy hijinks along the way because I have always gotten into trouble, even when I didn't mean to. And so I hope you come along on this journey too. Thank you so much. That's our episode. Thanks so much to Tommy Heron, our audio editor. I want to shout out Annie Wen, our intern for the summer, who's been helping me prep for the podcast and working on punching up the show. Shout out to Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, and Young Chomsky for the theme music. This has been the Newcomer Podcast. Please like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, most importantly, subscribe to the Substack, newcomer.co. Become a paid subscriber today. It makes this all possible. Thank you so much. See you next week. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.